Hey, Andrew. Hey, Greg. I want to start by telling you a story about my day today. All right, go ahead. Um, actually, it's a story about my weekend. Oh. And, um... And it doesn't really tie into anything, but it's 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 just kind of fun. Good. <laughs> so on Friday night, I was just um, you know sitting sitting in my chair, watching Castle Rock, eating craisins. You know how you do. Sure, <laughs> I always do that. I just chomp down on one of those sweet sweet cranberry boys. And uh, a lance of pain shot upwards out of my tooth into my my head. And um, you reach a certain point in your life where, like, you can just kind of tell the severity of things. Maybe you've just gotten old enough where you no longer deny when something feels serious. Or you've just had enough things go wrong in your body where you can tell, like, oh, no, that's going to be expensive. <laughs> Um, it was just like that kind of tooth pain where you're like, that's not just like, oh, I've got like something stuck up between my teeth. It's just making some pressure or whatever. It's like, no, that's, that is something wrong. Something has gone wrong in my head. Um, so by Saturday night, it was very apparent that, um, this definitely was not going to go away. I had, um, you know, flossed the hell out of that area and brushed the hell out of it and you know did all the things you could think of to just in desperate hope that it was something temporary um so nope gonna have to go to the dentist and of course it's saturday night which means you're not getting to a dentist tonight nor are you getting to a dentist tomorrow um you're just gonna have to take all the ibuprofen in the world and um not eat any solid food and resist uh, every urge in your body telling you to like kind of poke at that sore tooth with your tongue. Yeah. Which, of course, every time I would touch it with my tongue, it would flare up and not go down for an hour. So it was just a really great weekend. Um, just tops. Uh, and then today I got the earliest appointment I could at my dentist. Um, they took an x-ray of me and didn't even bother like easing the chair back to actually look inside they were like you've got to go to the endodontist now <laughs> um and it is in the tooth that and you'll remember um back last summer you had a bachelor party weekend before your wedding um up in the mountains of pennsylvania and the morning before well the morning of the first day of that i had to go in for an emergency root canal and uh that tooth um, was the one causing the problem. Um, so the endodontist had to drill a big hole in the tooth and put some chemicals inside to destroy the bacterial colony that had formed under my tooth. Uh, and um, it relieved the pain. And then I thought, okay, look, I've only got two days of work this week because it's the holiday week. I've got a lot of things I got to get done. I really don't want to carry any work with me into the, you know, into the holiday itself. I'm going to go into this with a clean conscience. So I was like, I've got a three o'clock meeting. It's two o'clock now. I can get back to the office. I can do this meeting. Um, and I'm like, okay, feeling good. You know, email the people at that that I'm meeting with say, yep, I'm going to be able to make it. You know, the dentist thing was quick. I'm going to be out. Um, 
send that email. I'm taking care of whatever billing things you have to do at the at the tooth man office. And uh, that's when it starts to hurt again. And it starts to occur to me that like, oh, Novocaine wears off. And they've just been banging around inside my mouth for the last hour. Oh, no. <laughs> so I'm driving to work <laughs> back to the office because I've already committed. Um, just with the pain in my face, just getting worse and worse and worse. And I reach into my lunchbox next to me and pull out an ice, like the ice pack I used to keep my lunch cold. <laughs> I wrap it in a hoodie and just hold it against my face as I'm driving down Route 50 with one hand. Um, and then I get to work and I'm like nearly blind <laughs> with pain. <laughs> So I take some ibuprofen out of my desk and just cross my fingers that um, at some point the, 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 the graph of the ibuprofen kicking in is going to cross with the graph line of the Novocaine wearing off and I'm going to be okay. Um, and then, of course, also half my face was just completely slack and numb. So I'm sitting in this meeting like a stroke victim, like trying desperately to drink water out of my bottle and just dribbling everywhere like a fool. Um, and as a result of all that, I didn't get to take great notes about Mandalorian and Watchmen. That seemed okay to me. <laughs> um, Sounds like you had a day, my buddy. I had a I had a really cool day. Um, but I did manage to get some notes together. About these television shows, which I also managed to, well, no, Watchmen I did watch through uh, a pretty good cloud of pain holding a, um, oh, and it's still here in the basement. I probably should have thrown that away. Uh, A bag of, well, they were frozen. It was frozen corn at the time. It is now just a bag of warm corn in my basement. Ew. uh, Holding that against my face because um, all the other ice packs were in the process of getting refrozen. So I watched Watchmen like that. Um, so I'm pretty sure I didn't hallucinate any of this episode, but we can talk about it and you can tell me. Well, you know, I, I think that you were kind of just getting yourself really immersed into the episode. It was kind <laughs> yeah. of a hazy hallucinatory episode anyway. Yeah. Um, but before we go into that, I have a question, Greg. Sure. Uh, when are you going to buy your Cybertruck? Ah, uh, Yeah. Here's the thing. That thing looks fucking dumb. What? But also, I want it really bad. I think it looks fucking awesome. I have never seen a cooler looking vehicle in my life. Look, okay, when I say dumb, I mean dumb in the way of like, like. (laughs) This shouldn't exist. (laughs) Yeah, this is like, it's like. That's dumb, but it's like, it's like when they made bacon pizza rolls. Like, that was dumb, but but yeah, man. <laughs> but yeah, I, I look at that and I'm like, I'm like that. I, I, I wish that they, I wish that the Tesla car that I actually want to buy looked like that, but yes. in car shape. I yes. don't want. That vehicle itself. I want a vehicle that looks like that. Yeah, same. I have no reason to get a truck, um, even a very cool truck. But yeah, I, I was people were just like 
going on about how shitty it looked. I'm like, what are you talking about? This thing looks amazing. Like, I guess I just have different aesthetic than most people. But because uh, I just I'm just glad that, you know, weirdness was standing. Elon Musk is committed to like, I mean, I watch a lot of sci fi movies like and they always have. It's always like it's the year 20. 10 and the world is different blah 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 and all the vehicles look crazy and he's like i'm gonna make that my reality <laughs> i mean Which I, I appreciate yeah i i like the i like the retro future aesthetic of it where it because i mean for so long you know for the last like 30 almost 40 years now Cars have just been like just more just kind of like vaguely lumpy blobs, you mm-hmm. know, like almost like a if you took a car from an earlier era and put it in a river for 50 years <laughs> so that it just got eroded down to like just a very rounded down general idea of the shape it once was like that's what cars look like now. Mm-hmm. And even like the Tesla mainline cars, I, I think are a little ugly because they're just kind of they're just that kind of shapeless blobby thing. But like the Cybertruck is so like um, distinctive and like it has an aesthetic that it's going for, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's something different, which is and I will say that there have been attempts at cars to look different. Yes. Right. Like. I'm trying to think of, I don't know what they're fucking called because I don't know anything about cars, but just like like the very like boxy, just like ugly, like I can ask Tekka looks bad. And like just like there's just like this car looks terrible or the one right. that's like, I, I think it's a Scion maybe where it's like it's not symmetrical in the back. Like the back window like curves around the one side for no reason. And it's like that just looks shitty. Yeah, I, I actually drove one of those as a rental many years ago. And that curved back window is actually really great for your right side drive, uh, your 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 passenger side blind spot. Oh, that's cool. I didn't think about that. But um, but yeah, it looks dumb as hell. But no, like I think like you're right, like the Pontiac Aztec mm-hmm. and um, it's like. It, they just didn't go all the way. Like he, they'd gone all the way into like full on like razor sharp corners. Right. I've heard it compared to like it looks like a, it looks like a car from an N64 th- racing game. Like it's <laughs> like straight out of Star Fox. And I'm like, yes, I've seen it, I've seen it compared to like, uh, you know, Lara Croft's uh, bosom in Tomb Raider. Yeah, um, quite frequently, which is uh, OK, fine. But um yeah, I mean, it's also, it's like, I just think it, I mean, Tesla doesn't make bad things. Like, they're cool. Uh, I don't have a reason to get a truck, but if I did, it seems like a good truck to get. Although yes. the, the whole demonstration debacle is still cracking me up. Eh. Um, Shit happens, though. Yes, it does. Um, yeah, it's just, it's so weird that they made a pickup truck that doesn't look like a pickup truck. Because there's something, I mean, there is definitely something cultural about a pickup truck mm-hmm. and the pickup truck is as much a cultural signifier as it is a practical vehicle true and it's kind of like it's kind of like motorcycles like roadster style like harley davidson style motorcycles like if you're gonna get one of those you've got to be prepared to have motorcycle guy conversations with motorcycle guys Mm -hmm. and i feel like the same thing is is true of a pickup truck 
Sure. And I don't think that pickup truck guys are going to like. I, I, I feel like there's going to be a lot of uncomfortable conversations. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Uh, I also think that. Um, well, I, it's funny you say that because I, I saw a book. And I'm going to botch it a little bit, but I was at a store and it basically was like a, a statistician. And he, he was saying that based on a couple of like seemingly random facts, I can pretty much like determine, like know the rest of who you are in sort of a, a broader socioeconomic culture, American cultural standpoint. And those things were like, do you have a cat or a dog? Do you drive a Prius or a pickup truck? And there's like a third one. And it was like, based on those three things, we can determine like the rest of the things about you. Right. Um, because they're political oriented. Yeah. And well, it's, I mean, as a, as a market researcher, um, that's, that plays into things like market segmentation where, um, you find two or three things that correlate very strongly with an entire cluster of other things. Um, so it's, so it's kind of like, if you can answer, I can get with three particular questions on a survey. I can, I can group you into one of five attitudinal buckets if I, if I do the work correctly. And it's the exact same kind of thing. It's just that, you know, if you have these three things in this specific combination, you are, you know, 90% certainty in this bucket of people. You know, is it that all pickup truck drivers are conservative? No. But is it that all pickup truck drivers who also have a dog are conservative? More likely, yes. All pickup truck drivers who have a dog and listen to country music are conservative. Now we're now we're narrowing it down. But yes. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it's also called Cybertruck. Like, come on. I'm yeah. Just in, I'm just in. I mean, it's it's weird that it's that, that they went from like we've got the model, we've got the Model S, and the Model Three, and they just look like they look like the kind of cars that, again, to use the video game analogy, you know how like in some racing games, like they have like real cars, mm-hmm. and in other race or you know they've got like oh there's like the BMW and there's the Ferrari, and then there's like one automaker that they couldn't like really get the rights to, so they're just kind of winking at like. It's not Toyota, it's Toyota, Toyomo. Mm-hmm. And they just look, they look like just slightly off from real world cars. That's what Tesla looks like today. They just look like just kind of a generic interpretation of standard cars. Yeah. And they just have these generic names. And that's like, I get it. You guys are focusing on other things, but then they come out with this and it's like, where the fuck were you hiding this stuff? You've got like crazy names. This thing's aesthetic is completely off the wall. Like, this is where I wanted you to be with the Model 1. Like, uh. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I mean, I am surprised because generally, like, because Elon Musk is a really fucking weird dude, like, in the other areas of his weird non-profit making empire um like you know there's a lot of funny winks and nods and stylistic choices made with the spacex stuff Mm -hmm. um you know like calling the one thing the bfr like you know yeah (laughs) yeah it stands for big fact whatever it says no it stands for big fucking rocket like and the fact that like this the new have you seen the new i'm not i'm not a big follower but like 
the I forget what it is, but like the most recent thing they announced. It's like it's just sheer chrome. The whole thing is just all chrome. And it's like, yeah, that's a fucking spaceship, dude. Like, um, I, I just I'm surprised that I guess because they were they really needed to probably market it towards like because they were so expensive initially, they had to market it towards like the only people who are going to want to buy these cars as like a luxury item mm-hmm. are going to want to have like a certain maybe you could say timeless traditional look to it without yeah. going off the wall. I mean, I think it's always a, when you're, when you're designing a, and this was kind of the question of like with the original Prius, because the Prius intentionally looked different. They could have made the Prius look like just any old, any standard little, you know, coupe, but instead mm-hmm. they had that weird chopped off back. Yeah. Honda did the same thing with their first hybrid, the insight. And, but then there were other companies who they're like, you know, they just, um, they just made a hybrid and it just looked like one of their, any, any other cars. It just had a little green leaf on the back or something. Um, so I think it's interesting. Um, that's a tricky thing with like how far, how identifiable do you want this thing to be? Because on one hand, there is some level of status symbol to it. You know, whether we're talking about the Prius or the Tesla, you know, it's like, you want people to know what you're driving. Maybe you want people to know how environmentally conscious you are. So that, you know, you want this thing that draws attention to that. Or with the Tesla, like it's expensive and environmentally conscious. So you want everyone to know that you're Hillary Clinton. Exactly. <laughs> the person Hillary Clinton. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm sure that was a very tricky needle to thread to like get it distinctive enough that people felt like they were going to get credit for driving it, but not that it was going to alienate those, you know, those high end drivers. Um, clearly, their calculus has shifted on the Cybertruck, but <laughs> I want, I want a a car that that has my the features and price tag that I want that looks like the Cybertruck. Yeah, yeah, I would love to. Uh, Shay and my sort of perspective is to have like, at least at this point and where you know potentially be moving like have one small sedan in this case we bought a new prius last year um that is you know our our day-to-day car and then a slightly bigger car for you know moving things and and picking things up and um which is my at this point 15 year old super outback (laughs) um but i was like you know, maybe in, you know, the, the goal is that it'll last another number of years, but maybe when that dies, but like the, the bigger, the Tesla, was it the X? Is that the SUV one? There's two models, I think, but I don't know. They're like super expensive. Yeah. Like you could almost justify uh, the, the consumer model. Is it model three? I think mm-hmm. it's like, that's only just a little more expensive than like other new cars. Right. Plus tax incentives and whatever. Yeah, but, you're looking at like it's kind of around the price of like a fully loaded Honda Accord. You know, you're right. like, all right, we're 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 into the realm of negotiation, right? Um, but when you're talking, like, I think the model is like sixty or seventy. It's like that's that's no, too much for now a we're vehicle. Getting into, we're getting into luxury car prices, and, yeah. right? Right. Um, the only thing bad about getting a Tesla, I've heard, is that if you if you get in an accident, you're fucked because they don't have back order parts that just like don't exist hmm. because they're just so far behind in production that they could only they keep wanting to sell new cars and not fix the old ones so i've heard stories of like oh yeah my friend has a tesla she got an like a, a fender better and it's been sitting in her uh 
parking lot or her, her driveway for six months because they don't have the part that she, they need. Huh. It's like that sucks. Yeah, I was going to so. say, like, I've got a 2016 Civic and I'm waiting. I've been waiting on parts for months <laughs> for that car. Good God. Yeah. So anyway, I never thought we'd talk about cars in this car podcast, but here we are. Yeah, we're real. We're real gearheads over here. Yeah, we're really in our lane. Ha, get it? Lane, oh, like cars driving sake. lanes. Christ's sake. Want to talk about Star Wars instead? Yeah, I guess we could. Yeah, let's talk about Star Wars. Okay. Something I know much more about. (laughs) (laughs) So Mandalorian episode three, The Sin. Yes. Um, This show continues to basically do exactly what you expect it's going to do, but still be fun to watch. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's just like, yep. Okay. Nope. He's gonna he's gonna walk away from the Yoda baby, and then he's gonna change his mind. Okay. Yep. Oh, he's he's in a conflict with the other Mandalorians. Oh, they're gonna they're gonna come to his rescue at the end of this. Oh, yep. There they are. But still, it's like good, good, good. Yes, do the thing. Yes, please. It's kind of like I don't know. It's not the same as like going to see a band where they just play the hits, but it's close to that. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with that. I uh, I think that I mean I really like this episode. I had some issues, a couple things, but um, it's still just been like a lot of fun. And uh, I, I is making me want to learn more about discussed last time, like what's what the other Mandalorians are doing and what their whole culture is now. So and I was told by a coworker today, like, if you go watch the Clone Wars, you're going to find out. I'm like, all right, maybe I will. Um, you know, I don't really want to sit through a cartoon aimed at no, children, I'm but not watch the Clone uh, Wars. I'll do it. I'll do it for us, Greg. I'll do it for us. Um, although apparently it's like not in any semblance of an order. Like you have to like, there's all these lists to actually watch it in oh, order that makes God. sense, which is fucking stupid. But anyway, uh, I, you made a note here about video game stuff. Yeah. 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 It's like, it, it really feels like that scene where you like. All right, well, I got some more materials and I need to go back to the forge and, and make my next thing. And like it even is like kind of filmed in the same way. Like they just mm-hmm. slot in a new weapon or a new piece of armor. It's just like, OK, that is it does feel very video gamey. And I wonder, Greg, I had a, a, a broader thought about this. Do you think that as and I'm not saying that's the case here, but uh, it could be is that as video games as here, restart as people such as ourselves are now becoming no longer children and you're up with video games and video game tropes and imagery and stories and styles. uh, Do you think these things will become more prevalent in film just because it's in our sort of like collective brain juices? I don't know. I don't know how much of it is like, I don't, I mean, I don't know how much of a video game player John Favreau is. Yeah. Or the Ooh. episode director who is name. I'm going to look up real quick. Oh, this is, this is, it's not just this episode. It's the whole thing. I think, um, it was either Kotaku or IO nine even did a little article about it today where they really broke it out beat by beat. And you're like, holy shit, <laughs> this is a video game. Um, um, Or is it just that because I've been playing video games now, I just I'm starting to see those patterns 
you know, where where maybe they don't exist, kind of a paraidolia thing where you're seeing the face of Jesus in a tree trunk just because you're trained to look for faces. Um, I don't... I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for movies to borrow a little bit from video games or TV and whatever, you know, movies, TV, borrowing from video games a little bit in certain ways in the same way that I don't think it's a bad thing for video games to borrow from film and movies. Um, but this particular thing, it almost feels like, like you could see a conspiracy theory here where look, there have been a lot of canceled star Wars video games. Some that we know about, Maybe some we never even heard about. Maybe some that never got past the initial kind of design document, you know, general plotting phase. Could it be that Disney had lying around a plot outline for a Mandalorian video game that uh, they said, here's some content we own. Could we maybe repurpose this? And because yeah. it almost feels beat by beat, like it's 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 getting hard to ignore at this point. Yeah, I mean, you could be right. I mean, I know that that there was a lot of rumors. And then was it confirmed that? No, I mean, that like that. Um, remember that like, Star Wars game that was like in the works? God, what was it called? Something 13 or something 50, some some number where it was like it was the next big Star Wars game. And yes. it got uh you know, scrapped after the buyout, basically. Um, and I wonder, like, I know that they were talking like maybe that was going to be a Boba Fett game or a Mandalorian game. Like, maybe maybe you're right. Like, that could be, or there was going to be some addition there. I don't know. It's curious. I uh, yeah, it was um, Amy Hennig who uh, used to be the creative director of Naughty Dog, who made the um, Uncharted series. Um. She was working on this single-player Star Wars game for EA that um, I don't think it ever had it had an official title, but it was um, it was like set in the Star Wars underworld, um, and it was a single-player game, and it never really got into production. But um, yeah, that could be something. Yeah, I mean. It, it definitely does seem like very video gamey, uh, which I'm not, like I said, I'm not disliking at this point. Um, it, it seems like it kind of fits, at least for this story so far. We may be getting off that path. Who knows? Um, I'm not, I'm not fully sure where the show is going. Yeah. Which isn't like in a negative way right now. Cause it's kind of, like you said, it's just a little, it's a little pulpy and it's a little, uh, you know, it's a little bit like light. Yeah, and and for but, all intents and purposes, we're we're really this is really episode two, right? True. And yeah. and, and if you think about you know the, the general pacing, episode one it pulls you in, it sets up the world, and gives you some you know that kind of introduces you to the main characters and the very broad strokes. And then episode two is really where we start to establish this is what the conflict is going to be. You know? Yeah. 
And it was uh, Star Wars 1313. 1313. Yeah, that was the name. Um, but yeah, it's it's this is so pacing wise, like I feel like I'm in the right spot of of like, okay, I get it. The conflict generally is he's on the run with the Yoda baby and has to solve the mystery of the Yoda baby as the um as the bad guys who want the Yoda baby close in on him. Fine. Fine. Um I kind of feel like I don't know how we get another six episodes out of that. Or is it eight? How many episodes do we have on this? Uh, that's a good question, actually. I don't know off the top of my head. Right, six to eight, let's say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. But I'm, I'm with you. Like, I kind of... I do feel like I need a little bit more out of him. Or we need to get another sidekick involved who can... Kind of play off him. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I feel like... I can't tell if the show is going for because we've seen in the you know the trailers we've seen a bunch of characters and and actors and actresses that you know are showing up like we've definitely seen other scenes with other IG droids. Mm-hmm. We've seen you know like there's a, a we've we, we know Ming Na Wen's in it. Uh, we know Gina Corona's in it. We know that uh, Giancarlo Esposito's in it. Like there's other characters we know that are showing up. Um, it's also eight episodes, by the way. Uh, eight total. Eight total. All right. So we have s- five, five, five left. Yeah. Um, although it has been renewed for a second season. So, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, 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 I do think I need, we need more for sure. Cause like, especially when it's like, we've got him who's not a talker <laughs> and then we've got baby Yoda who also doesn't talk. Yeah, and it's also that he's it's 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 he's not a talker, but he's also not like a facial expressions haver. Yeah. So <laughs> kind of need something here, guys. Also, I I guess this is maybe part of the new canon Mandalorian stuff, the whole like we don't take our helmets off ever. I'm like that's stupid. Yeah, we like, need to have a talk about that Star Wars. Like that's stupid. They have to eat. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, I know that Star Wars likes to gloss over a lot of that stuff, but yes, they they have to eat and they have to like drink and bathe, right? Um, I'm guessing what it really means more is, you know, like is it has it ever been have have you ever like removed your helmet in in public, so to speak. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like you, you have to keep it all, you know, like it, you're, it's your persona in the public. Right. And, and, and even within the Mandalorian community, there are probably certain social contexts where it is understood. This is a helmets on versus a, this is a helmets off situation. Um, in the same way in like, um, certain Muslim communities where, um, uh, you know, that where women wear like the full face covering, you know, but when they are in situations where it's all women, they are not necessarily, they don't have to wear that, right? It's right. only in certain, you know, and it's prescribed. So I assume that the Mandalorian culture is like that in some way because 
you you have to take. I mean, what if you get what if you get an itch on top of your head or or I don't know, you get a weird infected tooth in the middle of a Saturday and you've got to get it worked on. Like there has to be some kinds of exceptions. That's implausible. That would never happen to anybody. Not certainly not in Star Wars. <clears throat> um, yeah, I would imagine that um, it's more of a. Because it almost there was also all, the, this moment when the big guy tried to take his off. It almost felt a little Mexican wrestlery to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, where I was like, oh, I mean, I don't know. But we also saw like kids running around with them on and so I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I there's something, there's something to me about the idea of like, okay, when they're, they reach a certain age, you know, or, or when they, um, or when they're inducted into the Mandalorian community, you know, like a, like a, like a Mandalorian bar mitzvah, they get their mat, their helmet. Cause also that's the other thing with kids, like the helmet doesn't grow with them. At some point they have to get a new helmet, which means the first helmet has to come off. <laughs> Unless I mean, cause you can't just like put them on top of each other. <laughs> like a nesting doll it doesn't work that way. No, I like, they like, they're organic. They grow and like shed like a snake skin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, I don't know about that, but a couple of things I have here. Um, the length is feeling awkward to me. And I'm not saying that like I needed another 15 minutes in that episode, but it's just, it just feels weird to have a, you know, in the broad category, like drama action show be this length. Uh, I just think cause I'm such a pattern of like a comedy is 20 minutes and a regular show is 45 or whatever. Right. So it just feels like. So what are this these? Feels in the middle. What are these hitting at? This episode was like thirty-two minutes. Hmm. And yeah, because it felt quick to me, and I, I yeah. mean, I've been like keeping track of how long they are. Right. So I mean, and they they have, you know, they've got long credits and they've got long recap. So I was reading today, it's just like these have all come in around like in the low thirties, which is a strange length, you know, in in current time. Which, like I said, I'm not saying I I knew what else there's anything in particular I needed, but. Uh, especially since it's only eight episodes, just seems like not a lot of time, but yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I'm kind of liking the, the pace of it. Um, and I like that cause this is one of the things that the streaming video future was supposed to be freeing us from was this, like things have to be a certain length. Each episode right. has to be. And, you know, when you look at like a lot of Netflix shows, it's like, their their hour long shows are, or 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 HBO their hour long shows are coming in at exactly an hour long. Netflix their hour long you know they, it's it's like their their thirty minute comedies are exactly thirty minutes and it's like, but you don't have to do that. Like if it needs to be twenty eight, let it be twenty eight. If it needs to be thirty four, let it be thirty four. And like that was one of the things we were supposed to kind of be liberated from. And I'm glad that Mandalorian is doing that. It's just like eh, this one. Maybe, you know, like it doesn't need to be 45 minutes. If we don't, you know, I, I would just be adding filler. Right. Um, so I, I like that. And I like, you know, it's moving along. It doesn't feel slow and bloated. Um, and that's probably about right for, you know, this is Star Wars content. You know, it, it's it, it, it's got to keep moving because because you can't scratch too deeply on Star Wars stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, 
I'll say this though. I did like this episode a lot, but the last fight felt off to me. How so? I, I can't put my finger on it. I think it's, it's a feeling of like, even though they're using a lot of like physical effects and not relying on CGI, it feels like it's just not quite lining up. Like the, the action is feeling a little bit like, what we're going to describe as like light or are like disconnected. Yep. I know what you mean. Um, and I, I don't know if that's just like, just like the extras they have are just like not good at acting like they're under fire and stuff. But like when the Mandalorian moves, it, it seems good. But like outside of that, I just feel like like when they fire their guns, it feels like slightly off. Maybe it's just like a production thing. No, but you're, like you're not right. There's a certain um, <clears throat> certain weightlessness to it. Yeah, that's the right word. Weightlessness. Almost like, you know, some of the video games can mess that up, too. Uh, and it just kind of felt that way to me. Yeah. When you say this is the way that I felt. Uh, and sometimes that's the that's the result of, you know, kind of bad CGI, like especially the Matrix sequels had this problem a lot where mm. um, the the animated characters just didn't they didn't look like they weighed anything. They did just kind of look floppy and light, you know, Um uh, there isn't a sense of impact and momentum and, and those sorts of things. And um, I think when you use, you can also get into that when you use too much uh, wire work, when you're doing practical effects, the Lord of the Rings movie, not the Lord of the Rings movies, the Hobbit movies have this problem too. It all just feels kind of loosey goosey fakey. Um, but I would agree that this, this had that feeling part of it is I know one thing that doesn't work for me is when he shoots his disintegration ray at guys and they just poof like they poof way too quick it looks like a mistake yeah the editing to me like that I I, I'm not seeing a guy disintegrate I'm just seeing it yeah it just looks like an awkward camera cut um so that's part of it but yeah you're right there is just something kind of disconnected feeling about a lot of the action um and even when he was in the last episode or, or the episode before when he's crawling around on the sand crawler yeah there was something strange about that too yeah and i don't know I, I i can't put my finger on if it's the way it's shot or if there's a special effects thing going on or i mean it could even be something as subtle as like a sound design thing yeah where it's just you know it's you know, if you're watching a, you know, a fist fight and the punches don't sound right, like they just don't sound heavy enough or the the the, the impacts aren't mixed high enough up. Um, it just there's a weirdness to it. So something is you're right. Something is not adding up. I think it's something with the like. To me, I always feel like the lasers in Star Wars had some weight behind them, hmm. um, particularly in, in the in the, in the original trilogy, but even in the prequels and the, and the sequel, like it feels like even though there's lots of scenes where they're just like lasers everywhere, uh, in these smaller scenes, it felt like, you know, when someone gets nailed by one, they like really go flying and the kickback in them. And so it just, they felt like more like kind of like real guns. Hmm. Um, I had to kind of like look a little more closely and see if I could determine, like rewatch some things and see if I could determine what's what the difference is. But, uh, just something I hope that they can lock in here. It makes me, you know, I just want them to 
keep that weight because you don't want to get yeah you don't want to be too weightless especially in star wars when because it'd be so easy for them to just go off the rails then and especially because deborah chow is the person that um uh directed this episode and she's gonna she's the one doing the the obi-wan show Hmm. so like you also don't want to have lightsabers get that way either because that can get wonky yeah and part of me was thinking like oh maybe this is because Look, this thing is on Disney Plus, and you know Disney wants Star Wars to have really be a PG PG thirteen kind of thing. So they're kind of they're intentionally cartoonifying the violence a little bit to make it a little bit more palatable. And I was like, that maybe they're doing that. But then when I think about like the like you say, just like the lasers and the lightsabers, even in the new trilogy movies, like those feel a lot more heavy and dangerous. Mm-hmm. than the action in this. So I don't think it's a corporate choice on Disney's part. I think it's just some something just isn't something isn't coming together. Yeah, and like if if they wanted to go later on the violence, you wouldn't a have a door cut some guy in half in the first episode and b like even like when the Mandalorian kills the what do they call it? the Mudhorn, I think they called in this episode mm-hmm. like that was kind of brutal. Like it was kind of like you felt a little bad. It's just like animals just standing there, just drives a knife into the side yeah. of it. And it's like, all right, well, and then, and this, you know, like in this, in the previous episode, like that disintegration gun, like that's pretty, that's pretty brutal. Yeah. Like it's kind of fucked up um, in a way that we haven't like seen in star Wars in that same way prior. Yeah. That is like uh, that. Those people are, that, that is that this is one of those situations where like you just see somebody get shot and they just kind of fall down. And you're like, and maybe they're just hurt, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, this yeah. is like, no, that part there is, that is dead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do. I did like, I was very nervous that I thought that Carl Weathers was dead, but he is not. No, I, I think we're going to see more of Carl Weathers. I think he's going to do a face turn later on and going to, he's going to be on the side of our heroes. Uh, interesting. Um, but I, cause I'm really liking his character. Yeah. His name's uh, grief grief uh but yeah that i think just like i mean like i said like you're going through plot beats you're like oh i know what's gonna happen all those guys are gonna come after him again like you know but i did like the on the other hand i thought the it still had a little bit of weightlessness but the the fighting in the when he infiltrates and, and steals baby yoda again like that felt better to me yeah um Yeah, I, I I think that was a much more competent, um, you know, that had a little bit more of a, that felt like a James Bond movie to me, especially a more recent years James Bond movie where, you know, he's kind of sneaking into someplace and he's never quite sure where the next bad guy is going to be. Right. And sometimes he gets surprised and he makes a, you know, narrow escape, um, but yeah, I think that one felt a lot better because I think you felt the tension. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I just, um, yeah, I think that I'm still really enjoying it. I think that I'm curious where we're going. I'm excited to see more characters introduced. I'm curious what, if any, this is going to have, what impact this, so far at least, relative success of the show. Because I would say it's, See, people seem pretty happy with it and people seem like they're enjoying it. Like critically, it seems to be good. I think it's one of the bright points of Disney Plus's launch, which has been a little bit rough so far. Yeah. Um. So I, I'm curious, like, 
from a corporate sense, like, what does this mean for Star Wars, right? Like, if they're going to look to say, like, okay, this is going over well. How does that going to play into what they do in the next, you know, the next five to ten years with Star Wars? I don't know. I think that... I think that they're realizing that between this and Obi-Wan and what feels like a pretty successful video game launch of Fallen Order this week, um, I think they're realizing that they can probably run a pretty profitable Star Wars operation at a smaller scale for a while until they figure out what they want to do with movies again. Or they could also, you know, even if they want to do movies anymore, because now they've got a way to distribute Star Wars content. And if, you know, the Mandalorian might be much more profitable on a percentage basis than, you know, a a tentpole film, if not on an absolute dollars basis. So maybe they're thinking like, look, let's just do a bunch of these um, because, you know, there's a lot. It's probably a lot cheaper to produce. I was curious about that. Like, I'd be curious to know what, I don't know if they released it, but what the budget is for this show, because I've been thinking about this a lot and I don't want to dwell too much on like the business of it all, but just like the, the business dynamics behind streaming and all these services that are just like, there seems to be kind of a, almost like what we had in like the, what would that have been? Like the mid two thousands with like budget bloat, Mm -hmm. which kind of culminated in like, Pirates 3 and Spider-Man 3 and a couple of things that were like 300, 350 million dollar budgets of movies. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious for TV, right? Like the economics of streaming is a lot less clear to me, right? Like for a movie, box office stuff and you see all these different things and then you start factoring in. It's, It's just still residuals of just like DVD sales and toys and merchandise and whatever else. But for which is always a big factor when it comes to these things like Star Wars and Marvel. But I just wonder, like, I'd be curious what, like, the profit discussions are when it comes to streaming and, like, how much money you're going to invest in things. Like, you know, when they're saying that, like, oh, this Lord of the Rings television show is going to end up costing a billion dollars altogether. Or, you know, clearly the effects in this are, like, at least some of them, particularly when you look at the spaceships and stuff like that and the tr- and that kind of stuff, like, it almost looks like the movies, so like it, it has to be cheaper for sure, but not like dramatically cheaper. I, I don't know. I'm just curious. I think it is dramatically cheaper. Um, okay. I think that expectations are lower for production values, and I think even though maybe the the gap on screen between Mandalorian and Episode Nine might be relatively small. I bet you that small gap in screen accounts to a much bigger gap in dollars. Yeah. That probably right. You know, that there's a a certain sweet spot of ROI on your effects budget um that the Mandalorian gets you. Um and if you're just launching it on your own streaming service, you don't have to deal with all the economics of film distribution and theater agreements and all of that other stuff that costs money and time and, you know, all that stuff to make happen. Um, It's just when it's done, we just pop the files on the server and 
boom, we're off to the races. And then we don't have to share any of the ticket sales with a theater chain, you know? It's true. Yeah. Um, so when I you would, start adding up the numbers of like how how many users Disney Plus will have and that subscription price and all these yep. things put together, like, you know, and, and then you start factoring in like they might not even make it. Uh, it's just like it's hard to calculate all the indirect effects, right? Like entertainment is a complex business, especially when you're Disney and you have multiple avenues for which people can consume your entertainment, Mm -hmm. whether that be merchandise or theme parks or, you know, the actual paying for movie tickets or the actual streaming, you know, subscription costs. Because Mandalorian makes me money. The, the, The most direct way the Mandalorian makes me money is people who have signed up for Disney plus to watch the Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a certain amount of money. And then there's the obvious stuff of any merchandising and licensing I do. But then I also have what is the value of bringing a new viewer into the Star Wars brand? Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure somebody knows the knows the dollar value on that. Probably broken out by demographics. Um, what is the value of keeping someone in the Star Wars brand for another year, right? What is the value to Disney in, for me, in staying interested in Star Wars for one more year? You know, I bet you that number is known. And and I bet you there's a there's an equation that says the Mandalorian is going to get us this many new viewers on Disney+, Plus, this many new Star Wars fans. It's going to retain this many Star Wars fans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that you're looking at that. And and in a lot of cases, those numbers, like in terms of like maintaining interest, whatever the dollar value is on that, you know, Mandalorian probably retains, retains Star Wars fans much better than uh, the movies do. Mm-hmm. Which come out every right. couple of years, and you know, to mixed, mixed success. So, yeah, I mean, to to your point, I was just listening to the Hell Internet guys, and I think it was maybe two or three episodes ago they said like, come out, you know, the new Star Wars movie, and they are very negative towards mm-hmm. the you know the recent Star Wars output, um, and they're basically like, this is great, you know, almost kind of what you said, similar to yourself, like this is the last Star Wars movie I ever have to care about. <laughs> And then the most recent episode, they were like, you know how we said, yeah, but Mandy Lauren looks pretty cool, doesn't it? (laughs) It's just like, yeah, well, there's two people that you might have retained, you know, to your point. So um, two people were, you know, we put it if you're doing like a net promoter score who were like moving into active detractor and now you're bringing back towards at least a neutral or even like a semi-positive thing. I don't want to talk about net promoter score. You don't want to talk about net promoter score? Are we we getting too close to work? Do you know how many hours of my... (laughs) Work week are spent discussing net promoter score. My God. I hate it. I hate everything about it. We need to talk about Watchmen. <laughs> Holy shit. Whoops. Uh, Watchmen, episode six, The Extraordinary Being. Yes. Um, I went into this one with low hopes. Because I was like, oh, no, this just seems like I, don't, I can't watch like uh, an extended flashback. 
um, with a lot of like, ooh, look at this. Ooh, it's in black and white, except for this one little element. And ooh, we're going to do things where you think it's one actor and it's a different one. I'm like, I can't do that for an hour. I just need to move this plot forward. I need some. We've got to get to work on the themes we've been working on here. We've got to like. I need to know more about the world and the history. And I just feel like we've been treading water for a while. And I was like, this doesn't seem like the episode that's going to change that. But who boy did it change that? Yeah, this episode was really good. Yes, it was. Um, There were moments where I was watching this where it was I, I was almost. It's almost like when you're watching a magic trick and you're just like, how? How did they do that? I didn't think I didn't think that was possible. Like just in the in in and not in a like a wacky camera tricks kind of way, which I think there were a couple times where I was like, okay, guys, we get it. You can do cool things. Um, but just like just the general storytelling and the way they kept so many plates spinning in this, it was almost magical to watch. Yeah, and I mean to I've been doing a lot of work and reading about race kind of at my work and and through some optional things, uh, trying to be a better, you know, a better citizen of the world. And this episode really hit home some important points, uh, particularly just like what we're talking about race in America and racism and the best thing this this did for me uh, to get into it was it just showed for what we see Will go through. He has this very traumatic experience as a child. I mean, you can't get much more traumatic than that. Uh, and then he sort of, you know, perseveres and he is a veteran. He is a... No, he's not a veteran. He says Dow is a veteran. Um, he was a you know police officer and uh, kind of breaking a breaking a barrier, right? What we're told this sort of like American faux dream kind of thing, bootstraps kind of mentality, right? Like, see, he just he he pushed past it and he got there, and it's just like, no, this is systemic, and it will keep people of this marginalized group down. Unless the entire system is confronted. Right. And I thought that that this episode did a really nice job of, I mean, nice and that it's it's horrific to watch, but uh, was well done. Yeah. In the way that Will. Every time he tried to do the right thing, he was either. Undermined. By. You know, by actual racists or I guess malignant racists, right? Like the, 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 the villainous cops, right? Or the more kind of passive racists like Captain Metropolis who aren't necessarily hateful, but are still, disadvantage disadvantaging and objectifying and um kind of controlling him elsewhere in his you know in, in his career it's like he can't get away from it no matter what no matter what he tries to do all of a sudden 
um, there is that again, it's that system of oppression. And the right. reason he can't be out as a black man as hooded justice is because, and they're all kind of agreeing, you will be less effective in your mission if people know who you are. Yeah. And so it, it's like, well, then I, I have to play into this because otherwise I'm compromising my, my broader goals. And like just to see that kind of stuff sketched out in that way and to kind of show those difficult decisions and show how the system is so insidious and so self-perpetuating. You're like, damn Watchmen. Yeah. But to also do it while being a superhero origin story, kind of. Yep. Uh, And also like all these other interesting parallels and and, and, it's just, it was just really, really good. Yeah. So it did all of that while also giving us an origin story for Hooded Justice, which was really good, that at the same time as being an origin story for Hooded Justice also provided a commentary on Superman's origin story. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, revealed a whole lot of good information about the plot going forward um, and also doing a lot of good world building and filling in some of the gaps of, you know, how has the, the world of Watchmen, you know, post-hooded justice, how did it evolve um, to lead up to the present day? Like, it did all of that. <laughs> In an hour. Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I, I, I it, 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 again, it's like a magic trick. Like you should not have been able to do all of this. Um, right. In, in one episode. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it, 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 I really liked, um, well, I, I had a question actually. Mm-hmm. Is the relationship between, Hooded Justice and Captain Metropolis. Is that something that like was hinted at or discussed in the comics that both that it, it it's in the American hero story, mm-hmm. uh, but also actually happened? There were um, in a lot of the Watchmen Apocrypha, because in, in the comic, the comic itself is accompanied by a lot of these kind of in-universe like news clippings or bits sure. of the original Night Owl's autobiography and um, all of these things that build out the world mm-hmm. kind of outside the illustrated panel pages of the comic. Right. And in a lot of that apocrypha, there are suggestions that Captain Metropolis was homosexual, that Hooded Justice was um, – possibly homosexual there were maybe they had a relationship maybe hooded justice was some other kind of um you know non-straight situation uh there were a lot of implications um even in the the scene in the comics where um hooded justice confronts the comedian when the comedian is assaulting the first silk specter um the comedian hints at you know um Hooded Justice having uh, unusual appetites. Mm. Um, 
so yeah, it was hinted at in the comics. Okay, I had yeah. just forgotten that, but gotcha. So I was like, is this out of the blue or did I just forget? It's been a long time, so yeah. that makes sense. Um, but yeah, so, uh, and I really liked the sort of way it represented, uh, you know, not a real, maybe realistic, but a sort of artistic representation, representation of trauma, like things in daily life. And it does a really good way of like, it's doing it kind of in a symbolic way, but also doing it in like, this is actually like the sort of mechanical way in which memories are sort of blending together mm-hmm. in, uh, as Angela experiences Will's memories, mm-hmm. um, all at the same time, kind of. So just like really, really just smart decisions. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's, um, again, there were times where I thought it got a little too cute with its kind of time bending and, and, and time period mixing. And there were even certain points where it almost felt a little kind of hard to watch. Not like, oh, it's challenging me, but just there were certain there were certain things visually going on where I was just like, ah, it's kind of hurting my eyes or something. It's just like it was making it a little disorienting in a way that I, I don't feel was intentional. But that's a very minor, very minor technical quibble um, in this. Um, but one technical thing that I thought they did really well and to tie this back to the um, conversation about the action in The Mandalorian, the action in this is so good. In Watchmen generally, but I, I I really noticed it in, um, in these action scenes, where there's a really fine line you have to walk where the, you know where you we're, we're talking about like fist fight action in a relatively grounded show like, um, where the action has to feel realistic within the context of the show, which means you can't have the superheroes doing anything too outlandish. Cause again, these are just normal people. Um, but the, but the fights still have to feel dangerous. They have to feel like people are getting hurt. Um, and they do such a good job of making all the action look like this could really happen. Um, and it's just that the, the heroes in our show are just really good at fighting. But not in a way that's getting up to like, you know, kung fu movie levels of outlandishness. You just it does a really, really good job of just making it feel like they're a little bit stronger and just, a, you know, a little bit more experienced at like brawling. And, you know, they've got they've just got a little bit sharper reflexes and they're just one step above the thugs they're beating up. Um, it does it so well. And the action feels dangerous, but also fun to watch. And also believable. Um, it's really, really good. Yeah, I felt the same way. I was because it's, you know, um, like you said, there's there's some stuff that's, you know, there is a certain enjoyment to watching stuff that's like really heavily choreographed yeah. and, and exciting, but um, it also doesn't feel very real. And real fighting doesn't look anything like any of this, no. but it feels <laughs> more real. In this kind of con- in this in this example, than yeah. in other examples, it's it's, and I think that the level of choreography in anything it has to kind of scale with your expectations and the the kind of the, how heightened or ground heightened of the reality or grounded the, the what you're watching is, um, but I think that 
everything always needs to have a weight and you need it needs to feel dangerous it needs to feel like these people are actually trying to hit each other and if they hit each other it's going to hurt um and that any particular move that's happening might be the deciding blow of this fight mm-hmm. so that's really hard to get right but another thing that's really hard to get right in you know kind of hand hand action sequences is showing kind of different levels of skill um because a lot of times you know you'll see your your kung fu hero go up against what look like just like normal street toughs but then these street toughs are also doing like flip kicks and it's like that yeah. doesn't seem right yeah um and that's a really difficult thing to get right in in fight choreography um and it's one of the marks of you know good chore- fight choreography versus bad it's the same thing of like you look for that or you look for characters actually using different kind of styles of fighting and can you really tell the difference between them um or does everybody just kind of use the same generic move set against each other that's usually bad but this just does such a good job of doing all of that like the fights feel like they have stakes you you're never quite sure when you know when the tide is going to turn or like is this going to be the punch that knocks this guy out um that's really good. Really good. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it was noticeably good. Um, all right. So we, we've got some some good developments here. Uh, rough outline that, you know, uh, Will comes to New York after at some point in his life. Um, we learn that the baby he rescued uh, after the massacre was what ended up becoming his wife. Mm-hmm. Um although their marriage is relatively short-lived, it seems. Um, yeah, it's unclear how much time passes. Yeah, I mean, they had that kind of scene where they had the kid kind of coming. So, I mean, they worked together for a number of years because when it seems like their marriage breaks down, it's been probably at least five years. Yeah, the kid seemed like he was, like, mm, pushing 10, I thought. Mm, I would have thought maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe probably a little... Probably, yeah, you're probably closer to maybe like the eight, nine range, maybe, but yeah, it's longer than five. But, um, which I, what was it? It was supposed to be like Hood of Justice active like till 53, I think. Is yeah. What? Um, which is a little unclear of like when he actually stops. My, or am I just forgetting? My guess is it was after he. Well, I don't, we don't really know. My, my, my feeling is that. Right around the time that he gets the projector and he has the falling out with his family. That's probably right around the time that he stops um, the costume act where he leaves the Minutemen and stops the costume act. Because that would be um, so the riots well, the massacre was 1921. And then, and he was maybe four or five, six or seven at that point. You figure he gets on the police force in his mid-twenties, so let's call that 20 years later. So that gets you into like 41. That's when he becomes a hooded justice. And then has the kid a couple years later. All right, yeah, I, I think you could maybe say this is right around the time that he retires. But... As we find out, he doesn't really retire. He just um, retires the Hooded Justice persona, but still clearly keeps up his 
crusade against Cyclops. Right, which is this sort of like super racist KKK like conspiracy to uh, do something. Part of which we see is that they uh, use this mind control technology via the projectors to incite black on black violence. Yes. Black on white violence, but yeah. Which is an interesting kind of metaphor. Yeah, I'm not sure how much I love. I got to think harder about that. Yeah, that could be a little problematic, but. Because. Something feels weird about. The show positing that. Black on black violence is. Like literally the result of racist uh, conspiracies. I don't know if I love that. Um, and is the is the is the is Watchmen positing that if not for the Cyclops thing, there would be no black on black crime? I don't think that's what it's saying. No, I don't think so. I mean, I I think that there is something to the allegory of, um black on black violence being either uh, ignored, if not outright encouraged by certain white elements. Um, I think that's absolutely a valid critique. Um, And maybe this is just kind of putting a finer point on that. I think you'd also look at the other side of it that like racist, racist structures, superstructures, going to get Marxist about it are are the causes of of like you know poverty crime yes right like the reason that riots and things like this happen and you know you look at more recent examples like in Baltimore places like that like these are outcomes and side effects of deep seated oppression and racist structures so I think if you could do it that way, like that's a fair kind of like it's a strange allegory. And I think you could definitely take it the wrong way. Yeah. But if you view it from that angle, I could kind of get behind it. Right. The idea that. So and I hate saying the words black on black crime because it's it's been it, it, as yeah, a yeah. term, it's been so co-opted by the white supremacist movement. Correct. To deflect. um uh, deflect conversations, but I think you're right from the more, you know, maybe Marxist school of thought that, that, you know, practically by segregating, um, communities through official and unofficial means, and then imposing deprivation through cuts to social programs and racist hiring practices, you essentially create a situation where you've got a community that has no other option but to prey on itself and destroy itself from the inside because um, uh, you've, you've, you've deprived them of, of all other options essentially and put them in a situation where they have – that they have no choice but to, you know, um, prey on each other. So, yeah, no, I, I, I you know, I, as we talk it through, I, I think the analogy works a little bit better. Um, 
then then in kind of first pass, I was like, oh, that just feels like my first read was it felt like it was kind of diminishing things a little bit. Yeah, if it's a little fraught. I think you got to be careful with how you. Uh, yeah, 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 for sure. I think there's some fair critique for sure. Of like, eh, that's not exactly what I think you could take it in a way that is not a positive thing. Not that I mean, this is positive, but you know what I mean, you could take it as as yeah, you said diminishing or trying to by, by sort of putting it behind this sort of like mustache twirling comic booky thing that it, it diminishes like the actual racial even though i think it's supposed to be a, a an allegory but yeah yeah i'm with you yep i'm with you yep no i i think it it, it creates a um the idea that um, racists would advance their goals by turning black communities against each other. Yup, that tracks. <laughs> like, yeah. no, all right. Forget about the actual mechanism, but sure. Um, but I think that the larger um, the larger themes that are starting to develop here um, clearly race is is a part of it but i think there's something in here about who controls the narrative the 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 broader narrative because clearly part of cyclops's plan with this with their you know riot projectors was this is going to help us control the narrative about black communities right mhm this this makes this, this helps perpetuate and um, exaggerate the narrative that you know black communities are inherently dangerous, and uh, you know black individuals are inherently bad. Um, so they're trying to control the narrative by creating certain events, and then you see, um, you know when Captain Metropolis recruits Hooded Justice controlling the narrative well no sorry to back up um it's actually june and and will to a certain extent who try to control the narrative of hooded justice by making him out to be white Mm -hmm. and controlling the narrative that way and then captain metropolis trying to control the narrative about what the minutemen do and what's the point it's not about unearthing racist conspiracies it's about stopping moloch the mystic you know yeah um and supporting this 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 bank um so it's these elements of narrative control and um the influence of narrative because we have that thing about how much of will's career is hooded justice and even the last name he chose to take for himself, Reeves, goes back to that movie we saw him watching in the in the opening scene. Yeah. Um, so and the, and those and those connect to the broader Watchmen universe's themes of, you know, regardless of what's true or not controlling the narrative can have a great effect on the outcome. Right. It, right. It, and we've, even in the last episode, you know, what glass says to sister Knight, he says, what is true? Yeah. You know, or what is, what is even true anymore or, or something to that effect? Um, 
this idea of controlling truth and and even the way that the episode opens with the scene from American Hero Story um with the unmasking of of hooded justice in that in that scene and um how it's painting a particular version of history and then Laurie when we cut back to the to the real world she tells them to turn that shit off like she's rejecting and controlling that narrative about hooded justice who mm-hmm. has a certain role in her own past and maybe she knows more about who hooded justice is and quick aside there um so so far the i think we've seen two scenes three scenes from american hero story so far and in one in one way it's kind of a stylistic spoof on the snyder movie mm-hmm um, but in other ways, it's clearly a reference to American Horror Story or American Crime Story, both. Um, uh, now I've completely forgotten the uh, the names of the guys who make that show. And I feel Ryan Murphy. Uh, American Horror Story being obviously the anthology horror story and American Crime Story being um, a serialized uh, dramatization of certain, you know, American crime moments. I think the one season they've done was the OJ Simpson trial. Um, yeah. but presented in a similar style, although, you know, based on real events. So this is kind of a mashup of those. Um, but the fact that they used, um, and now I'm forgetting his name too. Cheyenne Jackson as Hooded Justice, um, that actor who was also played um, Danny on 30 Rock uh, for a couple seasons, he's in a lot of those Ryan Murphy shows. Like, he's in American Horror Story. I don't know if he's in American Crime Story, but he's in them. And then to see him, like, in this clear analog for, like, that universe's version of American Crime Story, I was like, you guys are too fucking cute right now. This is too good. Oh, I was just, I was like, is that fucking Cheyenne Jackson? Yes, it was. (laughs) Yeah, there's just so many, like, the fact that they're layering in things like that on top of the, you know, the other, what I think is like sort of two big things that they're accomplishing right now. One being really laying out some of these intense themes about race and narrative and, you know, truth. But also then also like actually making a compelling plot. Yeah. Which maybe that's probably like the area I think it could use the most help at this point. Like is making compelling world building with like within the Watchmen universe. Like it all fits really nicely together and paints this like really interesting picture that almost makes you want to see more. Like, oh, like what, what else could they like? shed light on that and yeah. if, they're, if they can do it this well uh but also you know I, I think that i'm still have some complaints that we have a little bit more movement here for sure but we have three episodes left and next episode looks like it's going to do a lot mm-hmm. uh but i don't as we sort of talked about previous episodes i don't like i don't love when shows don't breadcrumb very well yeah. and don't and like reveal and then like take care of like reveal the the conflict and then resolve the conflict in the span of like one or two episodes. That seems bad to me. Yeah. I think we could have, 
paced out the point to get to this a little bit better. But I think we clearly now have established that there is will and true. And they are opposed to Cyclops, which um, certainly controls 7th Cavalry because when we were in their hideout in the last episode, we saw the Cyclops symbol painted on things. So, do you so so whether Cyclops think, represents Seventh yeah. Cavalry plus the Tulsa PD or just Seventh Cavalry? But clearly, they're on one side of things, and then True and Will are on the other side of things because there's no way that Will is like he gave up on Cyclops in the '60s, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, there, we saw a very clear line from him getting the projector technology to then using it on Judd, who he accuses of being a part of Cyclops. I don't think that um, this means anything like in the broader story, but I do think it's a, it's an interesting choice and just another way like that it's doing this Watchmen thing is of sort of like, you know, making very on the nose connect like illusions and foreshadowing and stuff and connections is that the giant squid had like one big eye. Yeah. That's not a mistake. No. So that's, that's why actually what I thought that was when they, we saw it in the, yep. Uh, you know, in the seventh cavalry base it was like, Oh, that's like, there must be some like connection to the squid there. Cause that's the only thing it made me think of. And it was much more like, uh, detailed and drawn out in that graffiti. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so also do we think that – so now I'm starting to really put some pieces together here. Like do we think that – like so we have – obviously we know Will's story and his motive, some of his motivations. Although we still don't know exactly what is the current state of Cyclops in the world, right? But do we think that True, True's coming at it from like a Vietnam, like you, you know, murdered – millions you know thousands of people in my country to achieve your imperial dominance like i'm not i mean just like i'm trying trying to connect their motivations together of he's this like anti-racist you know uh crusader what brings her into the arms yeah into the arms of a multi-billionaire genius scientist lady and i think that's a that that's a totally open question that i feel like i don't have an answer to but i um, and I feel like so far this um, the show's done a pretty good job of establishing the impact of American racism on African Americans. It's done nothing about it's done nothing to build up that for uh, Southeast Asians. Sure. Um, so I feel like if it was if she had the same kind of motivation as him to throw that in at this stage would feel weird and kind of kind of rough. Yeah. Um, but if their combined goal was to somehow solve racism, you could imagine that. He brings the mind control technology. She's got some kind of memory implantation technology. 
you somehow bring those together and you could implant new memories, a new narrative into everybody within range of your MacGuffin. And... Uh? <laughs> I don't I mean, know. I don't know where seems... that gets us. I'm just saying, like, there's a mechanical thing that could happen there. Like, they've, they have yeah. put the pieces on the board to do something like that. And they keep leaning into narrative and memory. Um, I don't know. That's actually a really interesting thought. I don't know how to tie it back to some of the other pieces we have on the board. Yeah. Like the squid falls and Ozymandias and like, uh, yeah, I don't know how it all fits together yet, but I think you're onto something there. Plus some part of that feels legitimate. Yeah. I don't know. I also want to point out that it, it does a, you know, if one of the key components of the original comic was to sort of deconstruct vigilantism and, and this idea of superheroes, right? The show is also doing a really good job of, in this episode, you know, if you point out, like, individuals in masks or individual great people are not necessarily going to be able to bring down oppressive structures by themselves. Right. Right. Which is sort of a critique on not just superhero, you know, vigilantes, but more so on sort of like the more individualistic, uh, views that many, you know, maybe, maybe you could say many Americans have towards solving problems. Right. No, that's, that's a good point because Will, you know, in a, it's almost, it's almost funny because it's like, um, Will has like, he's, he has stumbled upon like a genuine comic villain scheme, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this evil organization called Cyclops is using mind control film projectors to cause riots in poor communities. Like that is some Lex Luthor shit. And he stumbles across that, like a genuine supervillain plot. And he tries to bring it up to, um, he tries to bring it up to the rest of the Minutemen, and the response is basically like, eh, that kind of seems like a black problem, you know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, because even though he did everything right by the superhero rule book, right, and found a genuine supervillain thing, um, it's it, it still gets, eh, well, yeah, but we're all kind of still kind of passively racist, so bleh. And I'm conditioned to not really take you that seriously because you're black, so bleh. Um, it's, and it's such a kind of a, even that is kind of a neat subversion of your kind of expectations of post-Alan Moore grimdark storytelling, superhero storytelling of like there are no supervillain plots like when you stumble upon the supervillain secret it's not that he's building a mind control ray it's that he's like um 
into kitty porn. You know, it's always like something really kind of mundane and gross and human. Yeah. But like this, it's like, no, he found a real 1950s supervillain right out of the comic books plot. But that but even that didn't wasn't enough. Yep. Wow, this show's doing a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, dang, <laughs> dang. Oh man, a year ago, Greg, can you imagine having this conversation right now? <laughs> oh, I was just, I was just giving my middle finger to like, um, Damon Lindelof's Twitter account so hard that I pulled a muscle. Like that's what I was doing. I was like, don't do this. Don't, don't touch it. Don't know. But man, they are doing a very, very good thing that um and i think the great success of it is it does not in any way diminish the original yeah the original is complete without this this is in many ways complete without the original like and this doesn't do anything to the original like that cheapens it or worsens it or, you know, undoes any of the things it did. Man. I mean, pretty good. But it it takes, it also doesn't just go off into a different direction. Like it takes a lot of the same ideas and themes and just puts it in different contexts. Yes. And, 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 and in the spirit of the original work, like I feel like it is, it is doing right by the spirit of Watchmen too, not just borrowing its imagery. And it's, it's that we were kind of talking about this a little bit with Mandalorian, like in the final analysis, would this show have been as good if it wasn't star Wars branded? Right. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when I look at Watchmen, would this show be as good if it was, not inspired by Watchmen, absolutely not. Like it, this, I, I this this show is not just somebody had an idea for a little kind of murder mystery superhero story, and oh great, you know what? The Watchmen license is available. Make these things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of the way Joker felt. You know, like oh, this was just kind of this could have been any just kind of crime descent into madness movie, but. Uh, can you make it be in Gotham? Sure. This this has to be Watchmen, and Watchmen has to be this. Like there is no, I there's no other way to do it. it this is exactly what it should be. Ah, it's too good. It's too good, and it, it's upsetting how good it is. <laughs> and now we get to see. Can I say the landing? I think it's, I think it's it still has a lot to do. It does. It does. But um, I was I was feeling real worried there about two episodes back, but now I am fully back on board. Yeah, I think that we've done enough that if they can get three really strong episodes here, um, I think they can do it. Yeah, I think there's one more thing. There is one more trick they have to pull. Um, and that is... They have to find a way to subvert my expectations of Watchmen itself. That in the by the end of this, it has to 
it has to make me question my expectations of something with the name Watchmen. Because the original comic made you question your expectations of a superhero comic book. Now I feel like this thing has to make me question my expectations of Watchmen to really come full circle. And I don't know how it's going to do that. And I don't even know if I'd notice it if it did it. (laughs) Yeah. But I feel like that's what it has to do. Yeah. I mean, I would say one way it doesn't do it is by like mirroring the end of the comic too heavily or something like that. Cause I've had some parallels with some things, but you know, and took a lot of themes and context, but, but didn't take, didn't like, they didn't pull a star Wars force awakens where it's just like, ah, we really needed to, to do this. Um, you know, setting it in a murder mystery and, and mm-hmm. having that murderer be complicated. Yeah. If it wasn't, I mean, well, is mind is a mind control suicide a murder? I mean, I, I would say yeah, but <laughs> um, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, in, in in terms of today's case law, it certainly would be, but um, but that also would require you to prove that mind control technology exists. True, true. Um, what they need to do for me at this point to really. I think what they need to do for me to like really sit the landing is, and I don't know how they get there in three episodes from now, like how do we take the Ozymandias storyline and connect it to this in any real way? Oh, I think, I think, I think that happens next episode. You think so? I think we are. I I think the storylines, either they converge next episode or the cliffhanger for next episode is they will, is they are converging. Gotcha. Like that, the, the the scene ends with him walking into the Tulsa police station or something, or the the the, this, the episode ends with that, or some something along those lines. Do you think that a way in which so it seems like True and Azimandes have always sort of had a somewhat of like an obsession with Doctor Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And as you said before, I think the focus they gave him early on in this season and just his presence in the comic in general and his presence in this world cannot go ignored. Mm-hmm. So I f- maybe, maybe they're going to try and use some mind control technology on Manhattan. I don't know if Ooh. that is that big like telescope thing that they, you know. If, if they're supposedly beaming messages to Dr. Manhattan up there, maybe he is listening. And maybe their plan is to try and utilize his power in some way. I don't know. Just putting that there. I don't I don't see how the show ends without incorporating him in some way. Not necessarily he's going to show up with his big blue dong hanging around, but like his presence being a part of this, the plot in some way. Yeah. Maybe not, but... No, I mean, I think that... There's a lot of Chekhov's Dr. Manhattan going on here. Like, we we spent a lot of time reminding us of him in the last... In the, in the first couple episodes. And then just in... Um, 
the previous episode to this one where they really made a point of, you know, kind of putting his symbol into the eye of the um, Ferris wheel. And then the conversation between the game warden and Ozymandias in the, uh, in the, in the last episode where the game warden's talking about our God has abandoned us. Like, I think they're talking about him, about Dr. Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel like he has to come into play one way or the other. Um, so, yeah. Um, I, 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 I do think that, that they have to bring him in and I would not be surprised if True's plan involves him in some way. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how one thing now that we mentioned Dr. Manhattan and God that I do feel like I wish this show had spent a little bit more time on is what has become of religion in a world with Dr. Manhattan in it, especially like post Watchmen comic, like post 1985 um world where Dr. Manhattan had really ascended to godhood by that point. Right. Like what is the state of of the church and organized religion whatsoever in in that world? I, I think that would would have been interesting to see in some cases. Um so yeah, but minor quibble. Yeah. Uh no, I think that's that's something I would have liked to see a little more of too. Um, you can maybe say, you could maybe think that, I mean, there are still churches clearly talk Mm -hmm. about that, but also we don't see any character really actively engaging in that. And you can maybe read between the lines a little bit with glass and say that some of this, you know, anxiety around squids is also anxiety about existence and, you know, but yeah, no, I I agree with you. I would have liked to see, they did such a good job with other things. That, I mean, that would have should, would have and should have really disrupted people's view of religion, right? Yeah, and there's there's some little hints of it, like when they were in the last episode when they were trying to figure out what church the Seventh Cavalry was based in. Um, it seemed like when they were looking at the pictures, they were all kind of abandoned and rundown churches. So is it that was that implying that that's the way all churches look now because we live mm. in maybe a post religion world um and then i think there's a line where one of the characters like like he says like what's the difference between an episcopalian and a baptist church or something like that and it's almost like is it just because that character didn't know that or just that's something that's kind of fallen out of the world now because those differences have fallen by the wayside and they they might have been touching on it but again minor quibble yeah uh are we getting episode this weekend or is it skipping a week? I Next. think we're getting a, I, I, I think we're getting an episode. Yeah. I hope so. You know what's we want another, another ridiculous thing this show did mm-hmm. in juxtaposition to the Snyder movie is that it made the squid really matter. Like, yeah. Cause one of the big things that, and I was always a proponent of this is like, eh, like, I don't think you really need the squid in Watchmen. And I think you could have, you know, I think the choice to have Dr. Manhattan be this sort of scapegoat or confusing thing, like, makes a lot of sense. And it feels tighter in a way. 
And now I'm like, well, but like the squid's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> and the squid, at least in this universe, like they really doubled down on like what we're still learning. And there's still some pieces there with the squid falls and whatever. But like, I just think that's a really interesting choice. Well, in, in hindsight, um, I think one of the, genius bits about the squid versus something more conventional is that in 1985 and even i mean even in our world today there there isn't a plausible alternative explanation for the squid right mm-hmm. like you couldn't say um you couldn't fake it right <laughs> Like, it's right there. It's a giant thing made of squid parts, you know, as opposed to the Snyder ending, which is just essentially a nuclear explosion that they, like, made blue or something to make people think it was Dr. Manhattan. Yeah, it was, like, Uh, his same energy and stuff. I don't remember the exact details, but instantly there are alternative explanations to that. So... That is not the sort of thing that um, Ozymandias would do, right? Because that's not as airtight as the squid plan, which, um, you know, because at that point, no one would no one would suggest, oh, that's just a fake giant psychic squid, right? Whereas you could say like, oh, well, maybe that was just a regular old nuclear bomb. I don't believe the story. Tachyons don't melt steel beams or something like that, right? Yep, that's that sounds right. That sounds right. <laughs> I think I heard uh, that somewhere. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. We are just made a good show. Somehow. So far. All right, so I guess we're going to watch this uh, next week. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to enjoy um, our, our independent Thanksgivings. Yeah, I'm sure you're cooking up something delicious for your family. I'm not cooking this year, man. Whoa. I cooked for Friendsgiving and um so for proper Thanksgiving, um we we basically said this year we can travel or we can cook. We can't do both. Yep. So uh we're traveling. Very well. And uh yeah, no, I I mean I I, I did make a, a pretty good thing for, for Friendsgiving. I was pretty happy with it. Um I'm gonna make deviled eggs for Thanksgiving and I'm gonna make a uh Thanksgiving flavored uh Chex mix for this Thanksgiving, but, um, mm. given the work I put into Friendsgiving, those two things don't even count as cooking at this point. I'm like, I'm dead in my sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it's very fair. Cool. All right. Well, hope, uh, safe travels. Yeah. And I uh, hope you have a good one. All right. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>